Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance and HR to the strategic level it's supposed to be. Hello and welcome to the Ethics Experts. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. And if you are a returning subscriber, hello, Bestie. Hope you're having an amazing day. You look amazing. You see what happens when you subscribe to the Ethics Experts. You get a bonus greeting on every single episode. No brainer to hit that subscribe button. You requested she is here. Joe Irvin, how are you, Joe? I'm great. How are you? Good. Thank you so much. I love. Oh, sorry. I was gonna say I love your fire in the background. It just makes me feel warm and cozy. Like I'm your bestie too. That's right. I just gotta set the mood <laughs> a little bit. We can just have a nice casual conversation here. Um, I love it. Yeah. Thank you so much. So uh, super excited to get you on the Ethics Experts. Um, you have a really interesting background. You've done a bunch of interesting things. You're a thought leader. You're an author. You're a CPA. I'm a CPA as well. So CPAs unite. Um, so really excited to just get you on and pick your brain. How would you describe yourself to, uh, those people who haven't connected with you yet on LinkedIn or haven't followed any of your, uh, you know, teachings? Sure. Yeah. I, I always say there's kind of, well, there's three main parts of my business audit. I'm a lover of auditors, which many people are not, as you know. Uh, so I try to change the perception of what audit is and what it's about. And I, and my main goal is to change how in, internal auditors interact with their organization. So that's kind of my internal audit strategy wing. I do consulting and mostly lately, I'm loving the ethics and culture consulting that I'm doing with organizations. So that's kind of my consulting wing uh, and education. I give continuing education to CPAs like us. Uh, I know you've probably sat through some of the painful, boring CPE classes, and that is what I wanted to avoid. So after 17 years of being on the other side of the table, I kind of am now trying to make those CPE more engaging and fun and doing the, you know, making ethics fun. I mean, this is, ethics has been my passion since I was a little girl, honestly. Uh, I start most of my presentations about how I've been a tattletale my whole life. Uh, so uh, I just, I love to make ethics more fun and enjoyable and not just a torturous class that you have to do every two years. And what, what was it about being a tattletale that just really resonates with you? Um, I, I would say just, well, I've got older siblings and so I, you know, I think they, I love the stories that they tell about uh, my ethics as a child. I always say I'm just, just a little really short whistleblower, even back then, that's what I did. Um, you know, and I think for me, it, it was constantly overcoming that persona of tattletale being negative. And, you know, I dedicated my ethics book to every tattletale and every whistleblower out there because it does. Both terms have a negative connotation. Mm -hmm. And how can we switch that and make them the heroes? Uh, Kelly Paxton, one of my dearest friends, says, you know, hashtag whistleblowers are heroes. So, you know, how can we just change that perception, really? And what's with that negative perception? Why do they have such a negative perception, you think? Well, I think, um, you know, of course, with whistleblowers, organizations, you know, they don't they don't want anybody to point the fingers at what they're doing wrong. And that's why auditors have a negative connotation. Same thing. Auditors have spent their whole lives pointing out what the problem is. You know, I, and one of my favorite things to tell auditors is, you know, you've got to move from the, you know, find the problem business, the nitpicking to the solve the problem business. Yes, you can maybe find the problems, but you've got to move beyond that and solve the problems and help your organizations be better. Now, I think some of the negative connotations with like tattletales and whistleblowers is that you're just you're just telling the problem 
And that's anybody is going to get a negative connotation if you're just pointing out what's wrong. It is going that extra mile and saying, here's what you need to be doing instead. Here's how you can fix this problem permanently. And I think, unfortunately, whistleblowers don't really usually have the opportunity to do that, or they've tried really, really hard in their roles and have been completely ignored. So that's, you know, I think that's a lot of them have that good intent at the beginning, but at the end of the day, they just have to go to the press or they have to go, um, you know, wherever, wherever they go to the board or so anyway. So I think that's probably part of the the connotation there. Have you seen any of this like jadedness that some of these whistleblowers end up being left with at the end of the day? And what do you think? I mean, talk, talk to me a little bit about that, that whole dynamic, because it's really kind of a tragic thing. It is a tragic thing. I think um, I have a, I have another dear friend who is still fighting being a whistleblower. She got let go. Um, the company actually has sued her uh, for kind of speaking out, you know, defamation of character type of situation. I think what I most worry about with her is her emotional well-being because it does bleed into your entire life and there is no boundaries then you know you're constantly in a state of paranoia who's watching me who's filming me you know and i think you'll hear that from almost anybody who's been a whistleblower that they almost live in this paranoid world for a really long time afterwards and i think that's you know that's definitely the saddest part yeah um you hear some stories from them and then it's like, is this a, this, this sounds like a thriller novel, somebody chasing them, you know what I'm saying? A guy with the, yes. the trench coat and all that kind of stuff. And who knows? I yes. mean, it, it may well be real. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's millions I, yes. of dollars, perhaps billions of dollars on the line and in some of these, these stories. Yeah. And I do think sadly, we do think that's a movie, but it's more in real life than we think just like fraud in general is more in our lives each and every day than we think, especially in our pandemic world. You know, I, I, I'm i a CFE as well, certified fraud examiner. And this ACFE's number one fraud in 2020 was just COVID. So, you know, you don't realize how much came out. And so now I feel like more than ever, it's important to teach everyone what to look for. So it's that I'm all about that preventative, proactive. What can we do? You know, that's really just that's my mindset on everything. How early in your life did you know that you wanted to go into how did you get into this game? Did you did you come up through the accounting world? And if so, when did you know you wanted to go that angle? Yeah. So I started um, I started at a big four firm and uh, most people will know and you can look on my LinkedIn profile and find it. But um, I will tell you one of my first pieces pieces of advice I got from a, a higher up at this big four accounting firm was fake it till you make it. And it, it resonated with me in that I said, that's, that's not how I want to live my life, my career. And so I think right off the bat, I knew that I would always make sure I worked for an organization and worked with people that had my same values. And that's hard to find in corporate America. So I'd say I was kind of set on a path early on to pay attention to ethics. Now, teaching it came out of me kind of sadly having to be my own whistleblower a few years ago and leaving a corporate job again because of ethics and ethical reasons. And I decided, you know what? This is what I, I want to do. This is my passion. This is what I want to talk to people about. Uh, and so I think it was you know, it was 15 years in corporate America that sent me down this path, sadly seeing the things that I saw. Yeah. And uh, just 
the kind of things that nobody even bats an eye at, which is bizarre. Um, yes. What was it about that advice that was so uh, hard to swallow, that fake it till you make it advice? And what did that really imply? Like what what mm -hmm. was that nested in that really ended up grading against you? And how did you deal with it presumably until you ended up hitting that eject button either out of that big four, congrats, uh, or to uh, you know the other place you ended up landing? Yeah, I think because it went against anything I'd ever been taught my entire life. You know, faking it is not a way to live. You know, I know now there's all these lovely, uh, you know, commentary around things like imposter syndrome and how it can benefit you. And, you know, I think there's a lot of different ways you can look at a statement like that. But to me, it was, I am not a fake person. I am probably, I hope, you know, genuine, if, if anyone calls me genuine, I think it's the biggest compliment I can get. And that's who I've always wanted to be. And so I think just the word fake it, you know, doesn't resonate with me. You learn in school and you, you spend all this time, you know, getting your undergraduate, getting your master's with me, trying to grasp the concepts and the knowledge and constantly being tested on that. Then you get into your first real job, quote unquote, and you ask, you know, I, I don't really understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. Can you explain it to me? And, you know, the response is just fake it. You know, you, you got this. You're smart enough, you know, and, and it just I think because it just went against everything for me. Um, so, yeah, and it didn't take me long. I wasn't there very long, under a year. <laughs> Let's wow. put it that way. In, so. in and out. Wow. In and out. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> most people get, you know, most people don't just dip in and out of some quicksand. You know what I'm saying? They got to struggle yeah. to get out of it. Uh, no offense. No offense, of course. Uh, yeah. Um, well, that's, that's interesting. So you, you were only in the big four for so, for a pretty short amount of time. I mean, the average tenure there is definitely over probably a couple to three, maybe even five years. Either way, um, what else did you see in there? Was that the first domino that fell, that kind of advice? Did it feel like um, an inauthentic sort of display of what you kind of had expected given the principles that that sort of educational track is built upon? Like what, mm -hmm. tell us more about that, that story okay. of stepping in. I just remember my huh. first, my first day of work, I felt like such a big boy. You know, I had yeah. a briefcase and I was so excited. And at some point I was like, what am I doing here? And that's such an, an yeah. interesting path. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, let me let me tell you this story. And I think, you know, I just recently told this story for the first time. And when I told it, I was kind of amazed by the reaction because I guess I didn't overthink it at the time. But I moved here from Georgia. I grew up 20 miles south of Atlanta. I went to the University of Georgia. Go dogs. I um started at this accounting firm. And the first day I walked into the staff room at a client, you know, we went straight out to that first client. Um, they know my first name's Amanda. I go by Joe, but it's Amanda Joe. I, I technically have two first names, you know, I'm from the South. Uh, and when I walked in the room and I didn't have a Southern accent and I wasn't blonde at the time, for, like maybe that has nothing to do with it. I'm very tall for a female. And I just remember the manager on the job going, this isn't that you're supposed to be some cute little blonde from the South, Amanda Joe, you know, and it kind of faked Southern accent. And, you know, and I think it's things like that when you start a job that way. And, you know, now we have things like the Me Too movement and things that, you know, maybe would never allow for comments like that to happen. But they did continue. 
uh, on, you know, for, for that first, you know, I'd say I was, I was kind of stuck on the world's worst client. So it could be that, you know, my experience all around, um, I've been told I had the world's worst first manager. So there's lots of things I think that compounded. Um, but here's just, so that was my one kind of more personal example from a professional ethics standpoint. The first client, I already mentioned, they, they we actually ended up firing them as a client, by the way. Um, they would give us spreadsheets and hide tabs and hide columns and think that we were just faking it, you know, as auditors and that we wouldn't see it, that we wouldn't find those. And so I think, you know, I saw professional ethics at its finest in my first, you know, first job there, too. So, um, yeah, started off on a, on a bad fit foot there for sure. Isn't it mind boggling, though? I mean... I just remember learning all of this, uh, you know, doing these case studies in school and you, you know, I just like had this picture of like, oh, I can't wait to get out of school and like see how business is done, like see how it's really done and you see how it's really done and it's just like, this is a disaster. Like, this is this insane. Is, this is why we do all these case studies yeah, in school. Like you think, you think you're watching movies, like this doesn't really happen. And, you know, until Enron, I think we all really didn't think it, it happened. And then, you know, you kind of, I mean, there's so many mini Enrons out there and there's, you know, it continues. And with, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm following the Elizabeth Holmes trial and, obviously Silicon Valley, fake it till you make it was the mantra and, you know, kind of uh, that move fast and break things mentality. So many of those things that to me go against ethics of human beings that, um, you know, the, I don't know, the world is crazy today, I think personally. Yeah. And there's this weird thing also happening, you know, now that we're talking about the ethics game, um, there's this weird kind of greenwashing that goes on with the ethics game where, you know, the company is green, it's a green company. And then the guy, mm-hmm. you know, the CEO has got five houses in the jet, you know what I'm yeah. saying? And yeah. there's all of this, um, there's all this dissonance going on and, uh, you know, trying to see through the virtuous signals versus the uh, actual sort of hearts being lived out you know, underneath or sometimes behind the scenes. Right. It's a very difficult thing to navigate. Well, I think there is, I read, I wish I had written it down. I read something that gave that a name, maybe probably very similar to greenwashing. It's like in appearance versus reality. Right. And it's always, um, you know, I tell auditors all the time, like you got to worry about substance over form, you know, and I think that's what's happening with things like corporate social responsibility is companies are getting the form, and not doing the substance, you know, it's a, it's a total facade, right? Uh, And I, and I think it it is, you know, while I think having corporate social responsibility is very good to have ethically, I think there is people are connecting that and there's not, those are different things uh, to me in my opinion. Well, I just think, um, you know, if I look at a company's value statements, which I do quite a bit, I want there to be, ethics or integrity or doing the right thing, you know, but I also want there to be support of the community, care for all stakeholders. You know, I think though, and I, I think that's where I see the separation because I think we need both. And I think when companies try to blend those together, it muddies the water Why? and none of the employees know what a firm value statement means. And so I think it, it's about lack of definition, perhaps. Okay on that uh in my mind so i am all about clarity transparency you know all of those things that i think i find it hard when companies start combining things like that yeah because i guess to your point if everything's on the same footing it's hard to know 
which variable takes precedence over another or something like that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a good way to explain it. Um, there's just too many pieces, right? At some point, if you put too much under an umbrella, employees don't understand what the focus is and what, yeah. you know, their focus is. So, yeah. So, yeah. you know, again, you probably can't an answer this, but is the answer separation? Is the answer focusing more? Is it literally a hierarchy of prioritization of values and things like that? Like, how do you think about it? Well, if I were to ever prioritize, no, you're good. If I was ever to prioritize a company's values, ethics and integrity should be number one. And, you know, I think it's great to define what that means. Um, I would say you can have an umbrella of ethics and put, you know, five points under it. You know, you'll see a lot of companies out there that um, they'll have values, but they'll also have you know, ethical codes of conduct and, you know, different things. So I think it's just pointing people in the direction of what what's the definition of this value? What is for me, the most part is defining what the responsibility of everyone that works there and everybody that works with that organization. Values are meant to be internal and external. So that's the other hard thing is that when you try to do too much in one thing, you know, what do our vendors think we mean by integrity? What do our customers think we mean by integrity? What do our employees think? So that's when you start getting so high level, you've got different stakeholders too, that you've got to define what that means. And so that's why, I mean, I would vote for breaking them up. You know, I think um, the companies, you know, if you look at the companies like, you know, Yahoo's value statements, you know, there's like fun and there's, you know, all these things and there's no ethics and integrity. And they had the world's biggest data breach a few years ago. So, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's where, you know, I go in. I don't know if data privacy falls in ethics. I kind of think that falls in, in a different category. So ethics can touch lots of those different values. So anyway, I just um, I think it's you know, it could be two part, it could be separating them, or it could be well defining for your different stakeholders. What would you say to an organization that says, well, I'm not going to put integrity and ethics in my sort of base values, that's table stakes, that's the foundation upon which that supersedes all of these things, I'm not even going to list it. What have you interviewed, have you interviewed Brian Chesky on your podcast? Because that's what he says. So Brian Chesky, Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb came out and said, ethics and integrity is not one of our value statements because that's something that should be inherent in every human being. Yeah. And while I see his point, he doesn't run an organization like I'm going to throw out Chick-fil-A who, you know, just is very well known for their values, treats customers and employees very well. Uh, Airbnb has been known for not protecting the safety of their stakeholders for uh, evading taxes saying, hey, not my problem that my host doesn't pay local taxes or hotel or sales taxes, those kind of things. You know, they've taken a very off hands off approach to ethics. And, you know, in my mind, he's kind of having to say that because um, his organization doesn't really they kind of put their ethics off on other other people. So anyway, that's that's my Airbnb opinion. No, that's that's interesting. So what you would say is that that's in in that's an indication that you don't that you don't even have an actual commitment to ethics as per your company's performance, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, it's always like, you know, I I would love to say it's inherent, but if you open the newspaper every day, there is a story about unethical behavior or fraud. And we can talk about the difference of how I define that for audiences if you want. But um, 
I think that you can't say that it's foundational anymore because we live in a world of of big me's. And that's what I say the worst ethical character is. Uh, so we can, we can take all yeah, that any direction I'd you want. To dive into both of those. What, what do you mean, first of all, by big me's? And, so, and how do you think about that difference between fraud and uh, unethical? Ethical and ethics, yeah. So um, I got the term the big me from David Brooks, uh, columnist, um, New York Times, I believe, uh, Road to Character. The Road to Character is his book. It's a very interesting book in that it's like a history lesson. He goes through a lot of people from the past, Francis Perkins, Dorothy Day, Dwight Eisenhower, George Marshall, and goes through, dissects their road to character. And they always put themselves last. They never put themselves out first. They worried about the community and society right. and, and the betterment of everyone above themselves. And, you know, chapter 10 in the book goes into the title is The Big Me. And he, right. he essentially says this is the name to the phenomenon that's happening in the world today. We're all out for ourselves. We put ourselves first. You know, if we find $50 on the ground, we're going to put it in our pocket because we're going to, you know, say this is what's best for me. I earned that. Um, very, very few people will go and try to hunt down somebody, you know, who lost $50 anymore. And so, you know, he just goes through some examples um, of what he means by that. And in my ethics training, I take it a step further and I say, okay, you know, here's the last six headlines. Tell me if you think there's a big me in here. And, and evident, you know, obviously there are quite a few yeah. uh, out there in, in the world today. So that's where I got that term and I kind of ran with it. Is that, is this just the natural terminus of sort of Western individualistic thought? Is this the pendulum <laughs> swinging too far? Like, you know, because it's not, we're not all about the collective. We're about that sort of individual, the I and so forth. Is this just the natural in the context of a sort of quote unquote free market economy that of course we're going to devolve into this? I think potentially, I think that um, we, we took it too far. Like I am a huge proponent of self-care. You know, one of my mantras is be pro-self, be proactive and be selfish, you know, worry about yourself. But I think in teaching us to care for ourselves, you know, we always say like, as a mom, I'm a mom, I'm not going to take good care of my son if I can't take care of myself first. You know, we hear that a lot. So we've, we've kind of, we built this society around like, we need to be more self-centered. We need to care for ourselves. And I think maybe, you know, as you kind of use that, we, we swung the pendulum a little too far um, because there needs to be a balance. And in fact, I'm working on, I told you, I'm working on my slides for my 11 o'clock ethics today. And I actually used um, Simone Biles on the balance beam of all the things we need to balance, right. you know, whether that's as an auditor, you know, we need to balance what our customer wants, what we need to be doing as an auditor. So I use a lot of balance analogies um, because I think we lost that balance somewhere yeah. along the way. And it's, um, I, that's what I strive to help, um, you know, one person at a time get back. So you're focusing on, you know, trying to minimize the big me's. We're focusing on trying to drive more ethical behaviors in our organizations. That leads to a lot yeah. of great positive externalities. Before we sort of do double click on some of that stuff, I'd love to circle back to this distinction you made between sort of fraud and unethical behavior. I think it was those yeah. two pieces. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So here's what I always say. Every fraud is unethical. I don't think I, I at least yet haven't come across one person that would argue with me about that. Every fraud is unethical. 
but not all unethical behavior is fraud yet. And so what I say is, you know, this is why I teach how do we audit culture? How do we audit the ethics of our organization? Because you can find some unethical behavior that would, you know, obviously combust into a huge fraud. But if we catch it early, if we are starting to be more proactive and preventative at organizations, we're going to get in front of this. We're going to stop those headlines before they're there. Great example, Theranos. If they had had board members that actually had a healthcare background, that actually wanted the device to work, that insisted on more information, more facts, more you know, hands-on, uh, just um, I, I'm trying to come up with a word in my mind, just more um, evidence that it's working. Evidence. That's the word I was looking for. Thank you. Evidence that it was true, then they would have perhaps prevented a huge fraud. And, you know, and because she was starting to act unethically because she couldn't get her her medical device to work. So it, it billowed from there. And I'm super interested to see how this trial comes out, because obviously there's two sides to everything and we're going to hear a lot about it. But, you know, I just I just keep going. If we could just start preventing some of the, these things when it's unethical, uh, it's not fraud yet. And so that's where I go up, come up with the distinction between the two. It's sometimes um, fun, but it's also sometimes kind of silly to do. But in retrospect, what kind of like audits of culture would have been tripped looking back at what you know about Theranos now? And you can't say anything about the turtlenecks or her deep voice. Or I won't say anything about that. Okay. Um, That may be a canary in the coal mine, though. Either of those, actually. Here's one of the podcasts I listened to, I think it was the dropout on ABC talked about, or they maybe even interviewed if I, this was a while ago when I listened to it, uh, the consultants that Walgreens hired to go audit the devices to make sure they worked before they put them in all the Walgreens. Well, he ended up having to step down as the consultant because they wouldn't let him, they wouldn't let him access the device ever. And so, I mean, kudos to him for saying, I mean, they were probably paying him buku bucks. Totally. Could he have just signed the papers? And are there 75% of auditors out there that probably would have? Unfortunately, I think yes. You know, and I, I, you know, kudos for him for saying, I can't sign off on anything for you, Walgreens, because, you know, I haven't seen one yet. And, you know, obviously red flag, red flag, red flag, yeah. red flag. And even Walgreens board believed Elizabeth. She was this charismatic, manipulative person and, and basically said, well, we don't need to see it. We trust her. I got to get a I mean, neck, man. I mean, this is yeah, trust. <laughs> trust is not a control. People trust is not a control. So anyway, I just uh, that's one that that pops out at me from from that case. Isn't that crazy that the board believed her? I mean, absolutely. I mean, the, no. It's no, so, I can't. I can't believe any of it. But these, that's these you know. stories are always so so fascinating for me because it's like, yeah. is it just a slow progression, or is it like, hey, I'm going to do this thing? You know well, I think that, that's the problem is we've let that fake it till you make it mentality take over because there's been some success stories out of it, and I think that's what skewed our view of how bad that saying that phrase really is for yeah. us. 
Um, and, and, you know, I've heard many people say over and over, you know, you can't fake it till you make it in something like healthcare. But, you know, can you fake it till you make it in something like self-driving cars? No. You know, I mean, like, you know, there are certain things that... It, and that's that's kind of another case study that I do. So it's it's um, yeah, let's let's yeah. let's, let's talk, talk about that one, because that one's pretty freaking interesting, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all I have to say about that is Google Patrick Lynn, the ethical dilemma of self-driving cars. So everybody in the audience listening to this, Google that it will be your four and a half minute. It's actually a TED Ed video um, that will kind of really get you thinking about what all goes into self-driving cars, the thought process, you know, what, you know, do you, what if you have um, a, a truck that stops fast in front of you, you're you, maybe everybody always uh, argues, well, you shouldn't be following that close, whatever. I mean, something happens, real life happens. You know, do you just crash? Does your self-driving car just crash into what's in front of you? Do you swerve right or swerve left? And then he goes into what if there's a motorcyclist with a helmet on the right and without one on the left? Does your self-driving car say, let's hit the one with the helmet because he's more likely to survive? Do we hit the one without because he's acting irresponsibly without a helmet? And it just makes you go, wow. They've got to think through all of these, wow. you know, yeah. scenarios. And uh, so, yes, very, very interesting. And, and he says, you know, this is not exact, but this is meant to be a thought provoking science experiment for your mind around ethics. And I, I just I love that because it I you know, my main goal is to get people thinking about it. You know, any comp any um, auditor. For example, I say, you know, you might not work in an industry where you're developing self-driving cars, but you're developing some sort of software that has some sort of financial data, maybe, or personal data mm -hmm. of, of customers, people. You know, you've got to think about the ethics behind that because that's the problem. Auditors don't come to the table with hard questions. They come to the table to kind of just make sure all the data got in there, make sure, you know, it came over from the system transition. You know, if we're, if we're transferring from one software to the other, they, they tend to do um, what's on the surface, but they don't ask, you know, okay, how long is this data being retained in the system? What all is it being used for? Um, you know, is this necessary? Is that necessary? I mean, we're just, at least in my opinion, a lot of times not asking the deeper questions. And those deeper questions tend to be around ethics a lot of times. And I don't think anybody equates those two things together. Yeah, I haven't equated those. So why do you think they stay so surface level and what prevents them from that, getting that extra dimensionality from that sort of ethics aspect that comes from the yeah. deeper questions? It's hard. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's hard. It's hard to ask those questions. They're more challenging. People take them more personally. Um, auditing culture is not an easy thing. When I go in and audit culture, there's four categories. This will give you an idea of questions that you ask. You run, ask questions around accountability. You ask questions around communications and challenge. You ask questions around incentives. How do we you know, pay people? How are we incentivizing people? What are those structures? And then around tone at the top, which is, of course, always the hard question, because how do you, um, you know, how do you really oust that bad leader? And um, so what are those kind of questions yeah. like? Like, how do you, uh, this, this is a super yeah. interesting frame to all yeah. culture. I haven't really heard that term before. 
I'd love to kind of dive into those. And that tone at the top, auditing, yep. talk track or question track, what does that look like? You know, really it's about, um, I am, well, it's kind of two things. It's about just asking everyone from the C-suite to the front line, how they feel about doing the job that they're doing and how they feel uh, about their leaders, you know, their leaders ethics. You know, it's, it's asking, have you ever been in a situation or seen a situation where you um, you've been pressured to change a number or, you know, someone's asked you to do something. It's getting the information um, out at however you can do that. So, you know, two kind of levels of how I teach auditors to do it at the micro level, you can ask interview questions under each one of those categories. And they're very personal questions. Have you ever been in this situation? You know, explain what you would do in this situation. Um, do you feel your leaders are accountable for um, errors that they've made or things that they've said that have ended up untrue, things like that. Um, at the macro level, auditing culture to me means doing a survey, asking every employee what they feel about working there. And I give many categories that can be from the technology you use to the data you have access to, um, to just fraud in general, biggest prevention for fraud. Talk about it, ask about it, because chances are someone out there is willing to talk and is willing to say something. Um, you can ask questions about safety. If you work in a, in an organization where that's important, I always go back to the example of the Deepwater horizon explosion, uh, out in the Gulf of Mexico, one of the individuals on that that rig said, um, was interviewed after, and and the interviewer said, "Why didn't you speak up? Why didn't you say uh, you know anything about the unsafe practices?" And he goes, "No one asked." And so, you know, I, I think to me that's just insightful because one of my taglines, I've actually got it on a little canvas from another podcast I did, says, "Just ask." Yeah. You know, that to me is the role that's not being fulfilled because. Most of managers, executives are walking around like this, wanting, you know, with their hands over their ears, not wanting to hear what's wrong. And to me, the benefit of auditing culture, and if you've got a management that's on board, that's great. If you've got a management that that throws up red flags or that tells you no everywhere, that throws up red flags all around because they don't want to know the answers. Um, and so I think that's the biggest thing for me is, asking, getting that information. You don't have to, there is not a right way or a wrong way to audit culture, but I think a good way for everybody to think of it in their mind is that just ask policy and however you can do that. So there's a lot of culture surveys and there's a lot of consultants out there that'll come and do a culture assessment. Mm -hmm. And you know, you know, your own sort of auditor's mind. What do you think the auditor mind or the auditor lens to that process yields sort of differently than just sort of your average sort of generic culture survey? Like just the word audit culture audit feels like there's more, there's more meat in there. Me, meat to it. Yeah. yeah. And actually I, I've actually heard that feedback. I, I have actually, you will know that there's an issue in an organization. If you have people excited that you're coming to do a, a culture audit because they want change. And I think if you are a good internal auditor, if you have created a good, respectful department inside an organization, they will feel like maybe you're the ones that can create the change. You're that spark of hope. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, and I have spent my entire internal audit career trying to tell my auditees or my audit clients that I am there for them. 
And, and part of what I teach, uh, my main audit concept is called total quality auditing because I took a lot from total quality management because it's all about the customer. If you are if you are creating the most beautiful product in the world and it has no defects and you know you think it's great, it's still meaningless if it's not what the customer wanted. Yeah, and that's a, a, a you know a top thing that Deming taught through TQM. And so I tell auditors, you can think your audit is perfect. You've looked at everything you you need to look at. You've done this you know way too long audit report that has meaningless issues in it. You hand it to your your client, your customer, and they are like. Ugh, you know, they don't want to read it. They don't want to see it. Totally. That's because it was meaningful to you, but to not to them. You haven't listened, you know, of what's important to them, what's going on in their world. And I think that's the problem is, you know, a lot of auditors, they do the same thing year, for, year after year. They do the same audits. They come up with the same findings. You know, we're not taking a different approach to things. I think ethics and integrity are foundational to any organization. So why wouldn't we be asking those questions? On each of our engagements, why wouldn't we be asking that area, how do you interview? How do you hire people? What are your questions that you ask? Nine times out of 10, there's going to be very few questions asked about ethics and integrity. But yet you're going to sit here and tell me all of your employees would never do that. Or, you know, I don't need to audit them because they would never lie. They would never. But you've hired someone you've never even asked that question of you know, what the, what would you do in this scenario question? And so I think you can catch people in, you know, their own. And I've had, I've had clients be like, what a great point. How can I tell you to trust them if I don't have any basis for that? You know, and it's just getting people back to, they think ethics is so fluffy. You, we can't audit it. It's not a real thing, but you can put data behind anything. Um, in fact, I'm working with another uh, guy on putting data analytics involved with my culture audit. So it's going to be interesting, I think, to see, to really point that out to people that there's data behind everything. Yeah. So and it's a kind of this weird sort of false dichotomy, uh, dichotomous thinking that people take with things that exist inside of our businesses where only the objective measurable things exist. Yes. And, yes. Um, what's interesting is a lot of those people, I think, I'll just say it. Um, they they're like, well, if it's not scientific, it it doesn't exist. Okay, well then, did mm-hmm. the did World War Two exist or did did World War Two happen? Prove that scientifically. Obviously, you can't. You need the evidentiary method. There are other methods in order to prove, you know, other things that you can't right. that can't be captured by this particular framework. So, yeah. spreadsheets phenomenal. It's got all those nice cells, and you can put numbers and stuff in there. That's not right. you you can't that's not going to be a representation of the actual world. That's a two dimensional yeah. thing. So of course you need multifaceted uh, approaches to get the full shape of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that, that little expansion and I'd love you to maybe perhaps tie that expansion of scope with respect to any kind of audit fun- function and talking about not just the fish, but sort of the, the nature of the pool that these fish are swimming in. How uh, ethical is the culture that we're all a part of? And perhaps maybe tie that to some of your work and trying to reframe the audit function or in terms of, you know, I think you do some nice work in terms of like the audit rebrand that probably needs to take place for these folks to be more effective. So maybe those can kind of maybe you can blend those two things together. Sure. Yeah. So I I love, by the way, I love that you used fishes and oceans instead of the trees in the forest because, right, that's the one we always hear. Right. Um, Huge. I think it's huge. Um. Because one of the problems auditors get in 
is their silos, right? And organizations as a whole get in their silos. And when you don't have the someone connecting those silos, you start to get issues. And so I think it's the same with auditors when, you know, we're auditing this fish and, you know, somebody else is auditing this fish and we never talk about the fact that these two fish might be colluding about something. And so, you know, it really is um, about that bigger picture Uh, from an ethics standpoint. I guess I would look at it as um, I would feel that I would explain to auditors that ethics and integrity and the culture in your organization, however you want to explain it, is the ocean because I have asked in, oh my gosh, probably over a thousand webinars now, mm-hmm. what people think is really foundational for the success of organizations. And I give them three options. Number one is ethics and culture. Number two is the product, the strategy that they, you know, whatever they're selling, maybe how they're selling it. Number three is the profits, the revenue, the numbers. So what is foundational to the success of an organization? I would say 95% of the time, everybody picks ethics. You know, there might be a few stragglers that'll say, oh, the product makes it successful or the finances make it successful or how that's run. So proof is in the, in the survey and the data in asking people, they think that is what makes successful companies. And if you look at the Fortune 500 companies that have remained through the years, chances are they've had some good uh, good ethics, integrity values. You know, they've done the right thing in crisis situations because there's been a lot of crisis situations at some of these companies. But if you do that study on who's made it and who's not, there are things that are going to stand out. And I think for me, it is you know, kind of stepping back, let's all ask the same questions on all of our audits of all the different fish and see what's the similarities. Yeah, right. Put all of those into the pool. And if you've got five different audits going on and they're all screaming about unsafe practices, which is what would have happened on BP if the health and safety auditors were were doing their job or any of the auditors, they would have been able to piece that together. And perhaps, you know, this is where I say, you know, it's great to follow our code of ethics. We can have integrity, objectivity, confidentiality, competency. But if we don't have the courage to speak up about it, present it to the board, you know, then it just dies with you. Yeah, I wrote this and so, report that's in my drawer. You yeah, know. exactly. <laughs> or, you know, or unfortunately, you work for a company that puts the, the you know, puts it in the drawer then. Oh. And that's where, you know, I get that question a lot. And, you know, I always ask the question, would you quit your job before you quit your ethics? Because I want the answer to be yes, I'd quit my job before I quit my own personal ethics. I'm not going to sacrifice my values to work for this company or, or, you know, do the wrong thing. I know that's not, you know, I know that's not always possible. I know people rationalize, you know, I got to got to feed my family. I got to do these things. I think we're lucky as auditors. Most auditors could go out and find another job pretty easily at a company that suits them. Now, do I want you to try? Do I want you to speak up? Yes. But at the end of the day, I want your values to match your actions. And if you work at a company that would just put your audit report in the drawer, that's not that's you know, that's not the place for you. Um, So I just I think, you know, for me, it is just about do it. You know, if there's no excuse to not try to not do it, if your management is not receptive, if if nothing happens, you know, then you have to make that choice. Um, I am huge that everybody has a choice each and every day when we wake up. The second book I wrote is called Your Road, Your Choices. We all have a choice. 
you know, to be in a, in a situation that's uncomfortable or, or comfortable for us. And so I, I'd say, you know, move on, be a whistleblower if you can. I love whistleblowers, but move on if it's not the right fit for you. Um, so much to talk about there. Um, <laughs> so hopefully I, hopefully I answered your you question. Did. You absolutely did. Oh, okay. I gave right. five more. I don't know which one. Oh, that's right. So <laughs> some, it's, this is an interesting thing. I think it's interesting to me. Um, it's interesting that it seems like a lot of people don't understand this concept of materiality, which is sort of a foundational principle of any auditor, right? Ex external, not not so much internal, I type. External, absolutely. Okay, so tell me some more about that because maybe I don't know. Well, I think, you know, one of the biggest that I teach, actually teach uh, at the higher ed level, and I've taught a few classes, and I get that question a lot. What's the difference? Students don't even know that all they hear about is audit, and they don't really ever get that explanation of external audit versus internal audit. Um, you know, external audit is about materiality, checking those financial statements, making sure that balance is within a material, you know, they're reason providing reasonable assurance that that balance is complete and accurate. Internal audit, you know, the definition of internal auditing is to uh, provide independent, objective assurance and consulting activities to add value to your organization. Okay. That is a very different practice than external audit. I mean, we, by definition, yes, we could provide assurance on insurances on some balances if we need to, but there's so much more to internal auditors. You know, I, I look at internal audit is very operational, mm -hmm. external audits, very financial. Sure. So that's, that's the main high level definition. And I, but it very much depends on where you work, what the expectation of management is. Because if you have management that just wants you to co come in before external audit does, you know, materiality might be more uh, appropriate for you um, if you're a financial auditor within an organization. Um, but yeah, so that's my my kind of two cents about that. So maybe it, maybe materiality is the wrong word, but I'm going to keep using it because um, sure. vocabulary is <laughs> not that big. Um, like at some level, even on the internal side, I guess we all have this like materiality algorithm running at all times. Cause you see something where, you know, I'm going to give, give a stupid example, but this million dollar sort of trial balance or whatever is off by a penny. Okay. Yes. Well, we don't care. Obviously right. don't yeah. like, obviously yes. it would be a technical improvement for this thing to some, it's not even worth your breath to even bring, bring that up. <laughs> right. This concept right. of like materiality in that we're constantly weighing out mm -hmm. an idea. Should we share it? Whatever. Um, yes. That seems to be a difficult concept for a lot of people to learn or to implement just in general, irrespective of financial. I'm talking about in terms of the, like, without materiality, there's a binary approach to everything, a black and white. We obviously mm -hmm. live in the gray. So there's this materiality thing that has to kind of keep running to know, like, okay, d is this is this infraction worth talking about or not? Right. I, I, we, I, we, call, we call that utter auditor judgment. Okay. And I would say in our field. So that's, okay. that's that. It, and I'd say that comes more naturally to some than others. Okay. Okay. The people it doesn't come naturally for are the people who are stuck in the fishes. The people it comes more naturally for are those of us that swim in the entire ocean. Um, and so you have to raise your view of the world in order to have good auditor judgment is the way I look at it. And that's a very, very hard thing to teach. I mean, as an internal audit director, I'd say that if I had to pick one thing, that I couldn't teach to someone, it would probably be that. Well, so you, you got, yeah, yeah. And, and like you said, 
that makes it um, that makes our job harder because it's subjective, not objective. And it's your opinion versus management's opinion. And that's where that's where audit gets, you know, kind of to be the, you know, the the hard thing to talk about, really. Well, I'm just thinking about this culture audit and you talked about these four different areas and one of them are is tone from the top. Well, mm -hmm. again, if you're just straight transcribing those conversations, there's some nuance in the way people are answering where they all divert their eyes yes. or they all kind of scratch their shoulder as they answer <laughs> that, that might, you know, with the proper sort of level of auditor judgment, you'd be able to say, yeah, everyone yeah. said the right thing, but I don't buy any of it. And I think there's an issue yeah. over here that could, you know, yeah. anyways. Right. Um, yeah. But teaching that thing, that sixth sense is always it's always an interesting but, conversation, you know? Yeah. The gut feeling. Right. And that's why I say, you know, that's why I say. It's about, you know, how can you put data to it? You've had the same conversation across, you know, and everybody gives you the same answer. It seems like somebody has told them that answer. It seems like they're all kind of afraid of their boss. Like that is, that's the hard stuff to put together. You will not have one auditor that says, I can't go into this room and ask these questions. They can all ask the questions. They just don't know what to do with the answers. That's the hard part. Um, and that's where, you know, really trying to get that data involved, aggregating all of that. That's why I say when you do a survey, whether it's on risks or culture, do it from the bottom to the top of the organization. Because if you just do a segment, you're not getting you're not getting the world's view. So the ocean view, I'm going to start calling it that now. I like that. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I want to be conscious of time. I know you got a pretty packed day. Um, you've written a couple of phenomenal books. Um, and there's a lot of podcasts out there where you're diving into those things. Um, I would love to kind of talk tactically or not, not even tactically. I'd like to talk like what drove you to write the books? What, what light bulbs turned on where you're like, okay, I have to sort of put this on paper. And then and yeah. I'd also love for you to talk about like, what did you learn from the first book that made your second book go better? Mm, yeah. Um, that's an awesome question. I, I'd say knowing that I wanted to teach and train, and that was my way of being a leader in the audit community, you know, ethics community. Um, when I started working vigorously on these, uh, you know, presentations, I'm, I almost said amazing presentations, but I guess I can't say that. Wow. But, <laughs> but, you know, you realize you've got so much content there. Why not put it in a book? And actually, let me go back. I was always one. I told you at the very beginning, I loved those engaging CPE trainings. I loved the ones that I got to leave with something. Yeah. So that, you know, the very first book that I wrote um, has a workbook. So, you know, this is if you take a training with me, you leave with these two things, cool. whether that's electronically or in hand. And that to me, again, it's about transforming how I remember it being to how I want it to be and how I want these trainees to remember it being. So, you know, I think that's what really, I don't want them to just leave having seen my PowerPoint right. on the slides. I want them to have my book with my thoughts and the workbook to work through my thoughts um, with them. And so I think that to me is the most powerful tool in my toolbox, to be honest. Um, the second book, I went from the audit. So this was total quality auditing that I was talking about. The second book is called, it first was Our Choices on the Road of Life. And then I've rebranded it last year to Your Road, Your Choices. And I ended up doing a workbook with that one too. Six fundamental choices that I think we all make in life. One of them, of course, is the character choice. That's one of the chapters. 
Um, but I needed exercises for people to work through that. I can talk at people all the time about the choices they want to make, but they got to make those choices themselves. So it's about helping them. Um, so I will tell you after I did the second workbook with the second book, I went back and, and refined the first one, you You know, you, you see how people do things, how their brains work and you're constantly constantly refining things. Um, The ethics book is the third book. It's called Becoming the Everyday Ethicist. It does not have a workbook yet. So that one will hopefully be the best of all that's coming. So um, yeah, so I I just, I love that idea of, you know, giving them what we talk about to take with them. So yeah, and it gives them an opportunity to process that information in another way and make make it their own. And the odds of that etching into their neural pathways is obviously a, a lot higher. Where does right. all of your passion come from? You're a very passionate person. You're full of, day, full of uh, very magnetic. Where does all that come from? Have you always been that way? Um, I feel like I've always been that way, but there was something that happened uh, in 2015, actually, that put me, I think, on this trajectory. Um, I actually have lost an aunt and a grandmother to cancer, and so I actually had the genetic testing done. Uh, and found out I was positive for the breast and ovarian cancer gene mutation. So I got a piece of paper that said I had an 86% chance of breast cancer in my lifetime. And I thought, well, that's not going to do. That's that's not, you know, that's not how this is going to go. Um, so I very quickly, I had a full hysterectomy. I had a double mastectomy. Uh, I had many, many reconstructions because I was pretty young still at the time and, and dating still at the time. Uh, so six surgeries in 22 months, I'd say sent me on a trajectory that life is very important and we need to live each and every day to its fullest. And that sounds so cliche, uh, but you you get a new passion for life when you go through what I call an adversity. And in fact, that's the first choice in your choices or your road, your choices is how do we choose to embrace adversity and just grow from it. And, you know, and, and I think that, you know, if, if nothing else in the past, you know, six years now, um, I have definitely embraced that and I will not work with people that I don't have the same values with anymore. I will not, you know, I have, I have, I feel like earned that power to say no and to, you know, I think that's something some people just don't have yet. And maybe it takes something big, but I think it's more of just a mindset and a, and a choosing to do that. Uh, and if I could teach anybody anything in my personal development classes, it would be that to just be proactive, whatever, if it's your health, your, your personal life, your professional life, be proactive, do something that you need to, uh, to just be more passionate and embrace life a little bit more. Yeah. Use it as a catalyst. Use it as something to Absolutely. build. I love that. Yes. Super inspiring. Absolutely. So yeah. where, where can people find you? Where can they learn more about you? Where can they get your books and your workbooks and everything? Sure. Where, yeah. Where can they plug in? <laughs> the, the best place is my website. You can either go to uh, www. I probably don't need to say that audit consulting education.com. Everybody probably knows how to spell those three words or my name, Amanda Joe Irvin. Dot com and it's E-R-V-E-N. But LinkedIn is always my favorite. So connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, I love to engage with people on there. I think it's the best. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of not a fan, a huge fan of social media, but I think it's just still the best professional uh, way to network these days, especially in our virtual world. So LinkedIn, Amanda Joe Irvin. Joe is actually in quotes on there. Um, on LinkedIn is a good way too. All right. Well, very good. Well, thanks again for joining us today on The Ethics Experts. Everyone, thanks for uh, coming and until next time.